This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast on the Makery Network. I'm Jeff Fader, and let's get into it. My guest today is my good friend, Jesse Savage. You probably know him as a blacksmith, but did you also know that he's a published poet, author? He's a photographer. He is uh, an expert in, in many things about blacksmithing. He's also one of the instructors at the Center for Mental Arts. Um, he's also, with his wife, Carrie, he, they are members of the Modern Forge team, an award-winning blacksmithing team that I'm f- lucky to be on, founded by Cliff Dufton and John Ariani, a.k.a. Genghis John. Well, he wants to be called. He <laughs> how to be how call- much fun was that interview? His interview dude, is hysterical. Oh, dude, my God. John I couldn't is- believe it. It was like, um, with the, what was the 1970s movie um, about the kid that got like taken prisoner in a foreign country? Oh, it, and then uh, it was Midnight, like tor- midnight, yeah, um, midnight Run. Midnight, midnight Express. Ex- midnight, midnight Express. Express. I, that- like, I heard that interview and I was so freaked out and I watched that movie that night. Then I texted him in the morning. I was like, that was the craziest story, John. He goes, I didn't even tell you about Prague. And I was like, oh, my God. Do you so know have- that when he's after we were done, he's like, next time I come on, I got to tell you about Prague. I, yeah, I, I've got, I want to hear that story, but I want to hear it in person from him. <laughs> oh, know? yeah. Well, that's, you know, we're we're fortunate enough that we get to do hammer-ins with John and Cliff and Dave, and and we get to hear these crazy stories. Like, you were there on episode, I don't know, it was the second episode yeah, or something like was that. was it episode two? Episode I, one? Uh, I told the story about uh, Dave, uh, Dave Cardilla, Damascus Dave's crazy, like, mobster uh, biker story. He told that to us, and was that the most fascinating story you'd ever heard out of his mouth we we all sat with our mouths wide open like we just didn't it didn't even seem like dave i was like really (laughs) is he he, making it up (laughs) you couldn't make it was too crazy to make up he the way he was telling it we were captivated it was (laughs) the most captivating story of all time and then when he wrote it to me i was so great i was just like dude you got to give me that story so he wrote it to me it was like six pages long but it was I had to do so much editing because there's a lot of then I says this and then I, it sounded like he was writing it for like a 1930s mobster movie. <laughs> then I says to the man, he says it was just like and I knew what's going on right. That was as an awesome story. That was the funniest thing about that was like afterwards when we were forging, um, John pulls this bottle opener he's forging out of the forge and it's got like this face and I'm like what is that? He goes it's like Dave's friend that shot himself in the head like and it had this guy's face blown apart. I was like. Oh. Oh my God. Jeez Louise. <laughs> that part I didn't know. <laughs> Jesus. I tell you what, that's still been the, the, this podcast in general, you know, I, 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 you know, not to mention Jesse's also on the blacksmith's pub. I love podcasting and I love doing knife talk, but the problem is I get a little bit, I mean, we've been doing it for almost, I guess close to two, coming up on two years now and every week. And, and it's been a lot of fun and we've had a lot of laughs and we've, I've learned a ton just by talking to Craig and Morocco and, um, we're going to have some guests coming up pretty soon. That's going to be like a little bit of a mind blower. Um, but the funny thing is, is like, I get so tired about talking about knives. It's like, yeah, scratch patterns and it gets, it gets not mind numbing. And, um, so when I started to do this, I wanted to have, I wanted to have my friends on and just, 
and just talk about what they do. But I don't need to know about like your bandsaws. I don't need to know about your forging presses. I just want to kind of like have these conversations. Like we're just kind of chilling out and telling these kind of random crazy stories. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, um, that uh, I have enjoyed knife talk a lot. It is a lot of work because like we've done the blacksmith pub, Rick and I, for like I think this is our like fourth year, and um, and we had a little podcast before that with ten episodes that didn't pan out. But we've been doing it quite a while, and it's um, when we first started doing it, we started doing it kind of basically because Victoria Patty was doing blacksmith the radio, which right. she's really not doing anymore. But um, I wish she would get back with it, but. Uh, it is amazing, like interviewing people and trying to set up times and like trying to get like, you know, three of us on the same page at the same time is it's so difficult. And uh, it takes, you know, it takes time. It's 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 a lot of fun and it is rewarding. And, and I am always surprised at how many people reach out in regards to knife talk and stuff like that. And I know you feel the same way because I hear we have the same art. The people who listen to knife talk also listen to Blacksmith's Pub. So there's a lot of crossover in it. And it's always fun to kind of hear that. But this thing, this the full blast podcast has been like this. I just wanted to be very like when when Craig and I were kind of talking about doing this podcasting network and I kind of like pushed him into doing it. I was like, he's like, well, what's your podcast going to be about? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to kind of shoot the shit with my friends and, and, you know, maybe something will be good. Maybe something will be not so good. The funny part was, is like, you know, we talked to the story with John Ariani of him in in India was like, I had like, I had my stomach hurt (laughs) from that because to the thought of the thought of being detained by like a potentially corrupt policeman in India with drugs on you and just stuff, you know, weed and stuff like that. It's, I mean, it's just like, it's the worst thing. I, it's the worst thing. I have such a fear of authority. So it's like the worst thing I could think of. Um, so that was so much fun. But then I, and then in the last episode, I interviewed Quentin Milton and it was like a serious interview. Like there was not a lot of, there wasn't any fooling around as far as I was concerned for a couple of reasons this is because, I mean, he and I know each other, but we haven't had a long conversation. We, I don't know him like I know you or John. Right. So the other thing is, is like, he's a serious guy and he's an ordained minister and he's got a very, you know, he's, he's very close to his community, his family. I mean, the questions, some of the questions I get from our listeners are like, you know, would you rather have penises for fingers or sausages for fingers? I can't ask an ordained minister a question like that. It's just like, so the funny thing was, so I, so I was really working hard on that, making it, you know, interesting. And I really wanted to give him something great. And then at the end, it was, you know, shorter than some of them. I mean, it was like an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. And he texted me. He's like, were there any other questions you wanted to ask? And I was just like, yeah, they kind of weren't germane to the kind of person that you are. He's like, so then I got on the phone with him. He's like, yeah, what kind of questions do people want to ask me that you didn't ask? And I said, well, you know, it was, a lot of it was about your penis. And he was just like, I'm glad you didn't ask me those questions. I'm like, yeah, I was, I know <laughs> oh what I'm God. doing. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it's, it was like, you know, you want to have p- penis fingers or something like that. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you can't do that to a serious guy that you respect. Yeah. That's hysterical. <sighs> but it was exhausting. So now I'm, we're going to, today we're going to fool around a little bit. So I had a question for you. And, and one of the things that's, you know, you know, all of our blacksmithing friends, we all have kind of similar backgrounds, a little bit different, but one of the things about you and you, of all of our, my friends, you and I are very close in age. We're like a couple, like a month or two apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. We are like a month and a half apart, right? You've, you've always been fascinated with history and even like you sent me, I asked you to send me some pictures for the, for the, uh, for the cover and I'm going to, you know, put, put them up. 
I feel like history has been such an important part of your life. Yeah, maybe. I never really thought of myself as well. I mean, I do now as being somebody who's drawn to history, but um, you know, as a kid, no, I was I was a mess up kid. Like I I was in and out of special ed growing huh. up. I could barely like pay attention in school. Really? Oh yeah, I was. You know, I was the kid. I was like, I was just I'd maybe a little different, but um, you know. Be, kind of reminds me of a, like a childhood story um like me being like into the like getting back into the archery and shooting like recurves and um you know like stick bows now um i kind of done it did it as a kid and my dad had an old recurve but i used to like hand carve all my old uh arrowheads and um i would like you know make the arrow and like cut the thing and cut the arrow and then slide the um the arrowhead on and tie them on by hand and stuff. But I used to do that stuff in the classroom, you know, I'd sit at the back of the oh, classroom really? and I would just like flint oh, yeah. nap, like arrowheads. Nobody, you know, I, Wait, I, you were making stone arrowheads in the class, in the classroom. I floated through school. I don't think if I said two words to anybody between seventh grade and like 10th grade, I'd be surprised. I just like floated through. What, why do you think that is? Uh, I just, I, I don't know. It was, I mean, it's not that I didn't have, I had tons of friends and lived on a skateboard and, um, and did that stuff too. But, uh, I, I couldn't function in school. I couldn't sit there and listen to them. That's so amazing to me because like when I, when I talk about you, you know, if I ever, somebody sends me a question about an anvil, yeah. I say, don't, don't, why are you asking me? I mean, you got to go to Jesse. I mean, I've, I must've sent 15, 20 people over the past couple of years to you because you've become such a, a buff, a history buff. Like when we talk, you you talk about uh, not only just about anvils. I mean, I would say that in regards to the United States, you're one of the the more knowledgeable people on the history of anvils in general, not just American anvils, all all over the place. But you have such a grasp and an enjoyment of history that I find it to be surprising that school didn't do it for you. Do you think it was about all the people? You think it was you were having like anxiety with with people your age or? Um. I think I have to be hands-on with stuff to understand right. it. Right. I can't, I can't just, well, I mean, I can just hear about it, but, um, I have to connect with it. I, you know, you I should are... have been pulled out of school at 12 and just given to like a farm or like somebody who's doing some sort of trade. Given and it, it makes farm. me like, I'm like adding on to my shop now. And I had a guy with an excavator come in and rip out like a retaining wall that was falling down. And, um, he was leveling out the land behind my shop and I was just watching him move this big, huge machine. Like it was like some sort of ballet movement, just so gentle and graceful. And he could just tap away and like pick up parts of the wall and like move things exactly where I wanted them. Um, I was like, how cool of a job would that been to have been trained on when I was a kid? Like I would have loved to learn that. Um, to a point where I kind of want to write a book, like 101 things they didn't tell me I could do in high school, you know, and about all the different, like, create, you know, blacksmithing for one, you know, you could say welding or, uh, you know, there's, um, an interesting business I'd love to buy in Vermont, which is, it's a family owned, um, ferry that runs from Fort Ty, like Fort Ticonderoga. Okay. Um, 
to back to back and forth to Vermont and they run it every summer and they just charge people like the ferry costs and that's it. I was like, how cool of a job is that to do? You know, you run it all summer here and then they probably go to Florida for the winter. Um, I, there's just so many cool things out there that I feel like I was, I was told like, you have to like go to school and then you get to go to more school and pay for it. And when you get out, you know, maybe you'll be lucky and be a banker or something and be able to sit at another desk. I was just like, I, I don't know what to do with that. So it's, you're absolutely right. It's yeah. So, it's you're, you're funneled, right. you're funneled into this, like, I don't, you know, just this life I never wanted to live. So I didn't know what to do. So I sat knocking arrowheads in the back of the classroom. <laughs> Dude, that is, that is, if I was the teacher and I saw Jesse in the back, <laughs> making arrow, what are you doing back there? Oh, nothing. And you look at arrowheads. Yeah, I'd be like, I better, I better call the principal on this guy. He's going to do a, you know, it'd be crazy. But I, you know, I, I tell you what, you couldn't be more right. And, you know, I went to high school, I've struggled through high school and then I went to college and I felt like I learned, I was far more interested in things out after I was in school. You know, like perfect example is like math. I hated math. And then when I started to work at the Center for Mental Arts and John Ledford really showed me how, because I mean, we were making railings and stuff and, you know, you can't fuck around with a quarter of an inch, you know, you can't afford, you know, it's like, everything's got to be, you know, he's like, it's, it's got to be to the 16th. Don't, he's like, you would say stuff like, don't talk to me about 30 seconds, but I mean, I need everything to the 16th. So he showed me how to, I mean, he helped me understand math, like uh, dividing fractions this is a perfect example. I told this to my daughter and I blew her mind. He, the way he told, he says, if you've got to divide fractions, the top says stay the, stays the same and the bottom you, div- you multiply by two. So I started to, I, he's just like, okay, so what's half of a half? Top stays the same, bottom multiply by two. Okay, a quarter. Half of three sixteenths, or half of three eighths is three sixteenths. He showed me, he made me understand it to the point where I was like, what the fuck was I doing in school? You know? Yeah, you know, the thing the thing with math, I felt the same way. Um, you know, the numbers don't mean anything to me. But as soon as, like, I started really building and creating things, all of a sudden, like, you, like, you know, the inches and the feet and then the breaking down of the fractions, all of a sudden, to, to, like, to become, like, not only, like, I understand them, but they're, like, exciting. Because um, they matter. They matter. Like, uh, like a three-eighths round bar is, like matters a lot to me it's like one of my favorite like stock sizes to use um and you know when it goes into like geometry and then um even more interesting is like the sacred geometry where you have like the the golden ratio which is um it works out to a perfect um uh i don't know what it is it's like 1.68033 you know, I don't know a million other numbers, but <laughs> you got pretty, you got farther than I thought you would. You were like, oh, I don't know what it is, one point zero eight three. But it, well, it breaks it. You've seen everybody's seen like the golden ratio, yeah. um, the image of it in the blacksmith catalogs where sure. it's a circle or it's a scroll like inside of all the rectangles. But like that math breaks down into like you know they used it like um, like Noah's Ark, like the cubit, like from your uh, their measurement from your elbow to the tip of your fingertips. And then, like, you know, the first rectangle, I think, is, like, the inside. It's your wrist. And then, you know, it breaks it down off of that. But they basically say that, you know, the pyramids were built off of that mathematical equation. Um, a lot of the stuff is Greek was. Um, the Mona Lisa was painted with those principles. They're saying, wow. there's a saying that if you build your art 
or you know you like your architectural whatever it is that you're building within um, the mathematical formula and include you know with the golden ratio um, people are just going to be naturally drawn to it because it's our it's like built into our DNA I love that and the first time I ever heard of that was with uh, Uri Hoffi he was obsessed with the Fibonacci sequences right. the golden proportions he was using golden we were doing uh, we were using we forged dividers and we were using golden proportions and I was trying to find uh, I think that the, you, know, you know what they do they have, they, have the, they have something for the golden proportions for people who uh, fix people's eyebrows did you know that like, really? uh, yeah. So there's this way there, I guess there's this like a uh, measurement, like, cause I was looking to see if there was like a golden proportion, like, you know, stretching caliper. And, um, when you looked up on one of these websites, Hey, it comes up for like people who are like, you know, doing people's eyebrows, like what, you know, whatever, you know, waxing people's eyebrows, there's like these golden pr- proportion calipers for, for that. So I always thought that's why really at some point, especially with, with my knives, I need to get like the golden proportion down just to kind of edge, you know, just to kind of like clean everything up a little bit for that reason. Huh? Yeah. yeah I never knew that about the eyebrows. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they, they figured, I mean, you know, I think, I think in the eyebrow business, you got to do whatever it takes. And if you got to go back to old Greek math, that's just what the way it's going to be. You know? Yeah. That's crazy. That, that job should go in the book. 101 things they never told you you could do. <laughs> now speaking of speaking now, that makes, that brings me to something very interesting to about you that I don't think a lot of people know is that you are a published author. I mean, you did do, you were very heavily influenced and you were a poet. Yeah, I how, was. How did you get I was into a, that? Uh, I worked in the library, like the uh, public library in town, for a few years um, when I was in high school. I also worked in like like a local record shop that was like vintage albums and that sort of stuff, and skateboards and snowboards. But I worked at the library too. Um, yeah, I always liked to be around the books, and then when I went to Boston, we, um, or I live, I, like, how old were you went to, when you went to Boston? Uh, 19. Okay. I lived there three years, three and a half years. And I like just worked in bookstores and had like a crappy apartment. And, um, yeah, I wrote a ton. I self published two books that I would, that I sold in like local bookstores around I actually sold quite a few in the tower records. Um, huh. and then, Back in the day. Yeah, this is before people were really doing self-publishing. I mean, it's pretty common now, but back then, like, um, the first one I did was because my uh, my roommate at the time was going to, um, I think it was the Art Institute of Boston, and he did it as, like, a, a school project. Um, so once I figured out they sold the second one, I did even, like, kind of a cooler book, and um, I had a guy do the intro, uh, Bill Shields, who is, like, um, one of Henry Rollins' like, friends. Um, he was like a nom vet. He wrote so, a lot so, of V. He wrote a lot of V in nom poetry, but he wrote the intro, which is cool. So, what was the first book titled? Uh, it was actually called Iron Meaning, believe it or not. Iron Maiden. Iron Meaning. Oh, Iron Meaning. And what was it yeah. about? What was the? What were the? What was the? The, the guideline? You know, what it was, was just the, about being eighteen, nineteen, and hating the universe. I, you know what I mean? It was like that I age, that, that age is just, it's awful. Like you're, well, you're transition. I wouldn't go back to 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. You know, those are, those are awful years. Well, but I mean, because you, I know how we were the same age at the same time. And that was like also, 
that was that we 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 are the height of Generation X, and that was a very very uh, angsty time for our generation. I mean, that was like the the height of the grunge music, and you know right. everyone was a little bit uh, sour, <laughs> and you know I think that was the perfect time to be writing like an angsty uh, an angsty book of poetry. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I did a lot of chat books that were more fun, and we I would do collaborations with other Boston writers, and we would do, you know, multiple authors and stuff, and put them together and sell them as like little chat books at the local, you know. What's a what's a chat book? Um, it's like a staple bound book. So you'd like oh. you'd print you'd print it, um, and then you would just you get like one of those long staplers and staple them together, you know, and you can fold them up with different type uh paper stock so you have like um you know like a heavier cover and then the you know that like the first page is like a heavier um cloth and um we we do really neat things with them like artistically they were like we really thought about how they how they were laid out too um but they were they were fun to do but like on top of that i did submit like daily like um tons and tons of poet poetry to different um literary magazines uh around the country around the world and yeah and i was published and paid for a few things but i mean but i probably sent out 500 things and had like you know four or five things accepted well but what got you into what what got you into poetry of all things i mean like Uh, you know it's my attention my attention span um like i loved reading lord byron like his like kind of like his obsession with with women and um he his words were like just you know it was like because some of his poetry is kind of long but like the sentences are really short um to a point where you can kind of even read half of it and and get the gist of i I guess it's just a vehicle to get somewhere really fast and you know the whole story in five minutes you know it's whereas versus versus reading a whole novel you know but it's so difficult. Poetry is so. When I was in college, I hated poetry because I had a friend who was a poet, and he was insufferable. And it was just like you know, he kind of like in a small liberal arts school in Ohio. All of a sudden, you know, you know, some jackass from Cleveland is now like you know thinks he's like a hipster from Brooklyn. You know, it, it, you don't right. have a, lot, a whole lot of you don't have a whole lot of competition. You're a big fish in a small pond, and sure. it was always very obnoxious to me. But you know, later and then I met other poets, and I knew a art uh, dealer who was a poet who was just in, once again insufferable. But now that I think about it, you know, later in life, I mean, poetry to me has always been about editing. You know, it's about, you know, it's it's a fascinating, it's fat, it's almost, to me, it's like harder than like just writing a book because you're constantly trying to edit yourself to be, to be the most concentrated form of getting out what you're trying to say. Yeah, in a way. You know, um, so it's, 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 I don't, I don't think it's as frivolous as it sounds. You know, you can make a little joke or make, you know, you can, you know, I have certain, certain way uh, meters and all the ways in which you can speak, but ultimately it's this very, very concentrated form of, of, of telling a story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously it's, um, yeah, there's so many different styles of poetry too, and different prose and, um, you know, just people's lives being different. I think it's, it's, there's really amazing stuff, but working in like the bookstores and the libraries and stuff, I was able to read pretty much everything for free. So, and the Boston public library was unbelievable. I used to spend like my lunch hour there. Um, 
there was so just you so were much, just sorry. so much free information, you know. Crazy. You were a sponge for information, but you had to have it on your own terms. Yeah, I did. I couldn't have gone to school. I did. I mean, I did. I did kind of fail out of college three times. Like three times. I would. Yeah, I would try and go for a semester and like make it three quarters of the way through the class, and then like just be like, eh, like I, I just, I don't want to. I just can't do it. I can't sit there. I can't be there at seven a.m. Like. I just like, and what for, what am I going to get at the end of it? You know, like, I don't, I don't want the job they're offering, you know? Yeah, it's, man, it's hard. I, the, the whole school system is tough in that situation because you, you know, they're, they're not, they're not really like, it's, it's, it's too difficult to just take a kid and say, this is what you're going to be best in, or here's some options. I always feel like, and I try to say this to my kid, my kid is, you know, school mate, it sucks. But what they're trying to do is they're just trying to throw out opportunities that might interest you, and usually it's usually not the case. You know, it's new, it's it's usually not something that people really want to do. Yeah, exactly. So you did a lot. So you were in Boston. You were and 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 you were doing this this poetry and you all these bookstores and self publishing, and then you got a little bit into photography, right? Yeah, I actually kind of did like the year before Boston from like 18 to 19. Um, I was kind of, I went into kind of my first apartment and girlfriend breakup and just things didn't go well. So I wound up moving out and I moved to my father's, which was like 70 miles and 70 miles away. He was in living in Saratoga Springs at the time. And, um, I moved into like his basement, not knowing what to do. And luckily he found a really cool job, um, just kind of by uh, word of mouth. But, um, a friend of his basically had, her husband was, um, a photographer and shot ballets black and white. And we would, uh, say so I went there, he hired me not knowing anything and, we would go do these shoots, which was cool. I mean, he'd just yell at me to like for different lenses and I would run right. back and forth with different equipment. And, um, and then he'd privately shoot everybody after. And then we would, um, take all the stuff back. And I did like all his developing and printing of the black and white stuff. He did some slideshow stuff too, that he had developed somewhere, somewhere else. But, um, I did all his black and stuff and it was like, I'd sit in front of a, like an enlarger, and all the chemicals for, you know, eight hours a day, just doing like all the printing. Cause it'd be like a hundred of the girls, you know? So you'd print all these ballet shots. And then the ones where like, if a girl was like a little bit heavy set or like something was different, um, like, or if like the lighting was off or something, something off with the photograph that you felt like you needed to change it. Um, we would paint it out with black ink and blend it with this uh, photograph ink. So that so, was the original photoshopping. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah, it was. It was really interesting how you could like enhance things or you know reduce things just by that. But uh, that was a lot of fun, and I wound up setting up my own dark room. I actually like my mom's friend had an enlarger that she didn't use, and she gave it to me, and I still have it actually. Um, but we, I set up, I had a dark room at my dad's place and then we had one in the city and I used to sneak in with my friend that went to, um, was it that, that our, uh, school in Boston there, we'd go in cause he was a student. So I would go in with him and use the dark room there too. They had this huge dark room and, uh, 
I did some, I did stuff in Boston, but not as much, but I, I did do like, I did do art shows. Like I showed some of my photography, um, around in a few galleries. I actually would do different things. Like I would do, um, stencil cutouts and like layering of photos. So I would print photo after photo with different shooting through different stencils. So you start to get like different patterns and like you start blending images. Um, you have to like kind of shoot everything like under exposure and then because you're you're shooting so much light at it um and then yeah so i showed some of that stuff which was kind of cool but it didn't really go anywhere i didn't really sell anything but i did include it in my first book i put in a lot of my photographs you know that's very interesting because photography has always been one of those things that i mean when i was in college and we had you know art majors photography was part of being an art major and to me, it was always interesting because, you know, when you're making a painting, you're, you have the canvas and you are kind of creating the, 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 the image that you're trying to, you know, you see, or that you're making the sculpture, you're controlling the materials in order to make what you're making. But photographer, it's, it's literally capturing an image. So, but you, it's, it's one of those things that in regards to time. You know, time is all of a sudden is a major part of your of the 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 study. Not just not just the the whatever you're taking a picture of. You're capturing this moment in time. And I always am interested in photographers because it's like you're you kind of don't want a piece of it, but it is your vision to capture it. And it's always been something interesting. And I, and I actually have thought about you in regards to photography and your writing and your poetry and also your history, your fascination with history, especially uh, not just anvils and blacksmithing, but your own family. Uh, I feel like, and when I, and also not to mention when you sent me the pictures of you when you were a kid, there were these moments that you that I noticed about you. There was one where you're sitting on this vintage motorcycle and you have the white T-shirt on and your hair slicked back. And you, I mean, if you told me it was from the 1950s, I'd believe you. It was this very like quintessential slicked back uh, motorcyclist. And and now when I know you and, I, and we hang out and I, you got this big mustache and you like really have kind of like turned into this like, you know, this 1800s blacksmith and stuff like that. I always feel like you're like a man out of time, you know? Yeah, maybe. But I would rather have the pompadour back and <laughs> hair on top of my head. <laughs> For Dude. some reason, I lost all my hair and it went to my upper level. <laughs> I'm telling so you that. I'm telling you, you this. You... <laughs> were a beautiful man. I mean, you, I mean, you're still a beautiful <laughs> man, but I mean, like I'm going to post those pictures that you, that you sent me because there's uh, one of them. They're kind of goofy, but yeah, there, well, there's one of them and I'm going to put it in. If you follow full blast podcast on Instagram, you'll see it. You look like this young, you have long hair and you almost, you have your eyebrows are a little bit like up a little bit and you got like this, kind of like heart throb <laughs> from like from like uh like what are the those uh the twilight movies like you like you're about to turn into a like a werewolf or something like that oh, you're Jesus. like beautiful yeah. werewolf and then there's and then there's you've gone through these transformations and i'm just wondering how that of you know how time how time is just this huge factor in your life yeah, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I think I've just done different things. Like you, you know, certainly I'm, have. I mean, the just the just the tracking of your own family. I mean, yeah, you've the actually, family history stuff. I'm like super passionate about. Well, let's let's hear a little bit about it. What's the farthest back you know of the Savage family? 
Yeah, the savages are, are pretty cool, and they're they're somewhat of a new. I mean, there's a million roads to go with genealogy, and you can pick the family line you like, um, and go with that. But usually, I mean, you get really attached to people and stories. Um, I you know lately I've been into like the Scottish stuff in my mom's side and the um the Smith family, which has been really cool because they're they're pretty wealthy. So you know. It, there, and there's a lot of, and my great grandmother lived till she was uh, 98, and I got to like personally hear a lot of the stories. So that bridged me to like that generation, and huh. um, I feel really close with a lot of them, even though I didn't meet them, um, just because I heard so many of the stories, and I have so much of their like you know furniture and books and stuff. Um, but with the savages is really weird. So my my father. Um, my father's, um, uh, he, he did rehabilitation of, uh, like kids with brain injuries. He did a lot of huh. military stuff. Huh. Um, he's kind of a big shot in that world. He was like, he started like the national head injury foundation and, um, huh. uh, he spoke in front of, um, the UN like more than once. He, you know, like he's put on meetings at the Vatican and rented out the place and had like, you know, a dinner with the mayor of Rome like he's done like crazy stuff um in that wait, world wait, did he was he a doctor or did he he's a doctor of education um actually but he he got into it from working when he was younger in special ed to like a local kid who was actually my wife's cousin Lenny Burke um having a, an injury on a basketball court and he helped rehabilitate this young kid and him and, using what um, kind of like special techniques or something that he figured out himself or yeah just therapy and stuff and developing systems and like how to treat this stuff um and what carrie what country was it where the kids were gassed yeah. syria yeah he was asked to go in there and set up plans to like get these kids back you know, that, in shape and go through the, the right re rehabilitation. I'm probably missing a lot of stuff that no, he did. Well, but, no, we're, I, need to, uh, I need to keep talking about your dad because now, nowadays head injuries are like the number one, is a giant story in regards to professional sports, not to mention they are, know, childhood he's, sports. He's, he's the one that put that through. He wrote the, um, the legislation and started the whole, like the girl, like what's the pink girl movement, Carrie? My, concussions. Oh, pink concussions. Um, in the, uh, he wrote a bill that he was trying to push through Congress for, um, the vets, um, coming home from Afghanistan, Iraq, that, uh, just showing that like your brain really develops. It, it really doesn't stop developing until you're like 26. So he wanted to oh. classify these guys still as, um, children so that they got like, um, the healthcare that they really deserved and needed. And um, I think my grandfather was a lieutenant colonel. He's a full-time military guy. So my dad grew up going from military base to military base. And, um, you know, he never served in Vietnam. And I think he always wanted to give back. So he tried to do quite a bit for, for the military. Um, so he, I mean, did, he did a lot of stuff with, like, Native Americans and working on reservations. And I remember when I lived with him, in, like, when I was a 
like, you know, 18, 19 in uh, Saratoga, he would like fly into New York City at like, you know, four in the morning and take like gypsy cabs to like these places where this kid got caught, you know, with a nine millimeter and like a gun, gun shot, you know, thing. And he would go into these bad neighborhoods to evaluate these kids and never for any money just because he cared about the people. Um, That's unbelievable. Yeah, well, it was really cool. He, he was running a hospital in um, New York State at the time, and he wound up running a couple in England. Um, and he did. He ended up running another one in Sarat or not Saratoga, in New Jersey for a while, and then he went on his own and just did like, kind of retired out doing consulting work. So what does he? Um, do? So he's retired now. Yeah, he's retired out now. Um, I mean, he still does stuff for people, you know, one on one. Not really. Um, He's kind of replaced himself and trained up people that kind of take over what he did. Because, the, like I said, I mean, that's like I, I'm fascinated by uh, brain injury is like, you know, like I used to love watching MMA and uh, boxing and, and football and stuff like that. And and I was kind of fascinated with what was going on with, you know, the people with their traumatic brain injury. To the point yeah. where I had heard that like water skiing is bad for your brain, like yeah, your brains. Yeah, like if, you, if you're like slapping around on the water, you know not, your brains are gonna smash up on the inside of your skull. Right. Jeez, he must have been super busy. He was crazy. I didn't see him for like most of my life, you know, until he retired. Um, but do you think uh, that was hard on you? Yeah, when in a way it was. Um, he was, uh, he's probably one of the most giving people I met, but he's pretty demanding too. Right. So, um, but especially he, growing know, up and growing up and your father's helping all these kids and stuff like that. And you're just like, what the hell is eh, from yeah, me? I just didn't, I didn't see him. My parents divorced when I was younger and, uh, hmm. he kind of moved out and, you know, he was, he I, you know, I think he, he logged like, I don't know how many mile, million miles in airplanes, you know, over the years, but, um, he's like spoken in every state in the country, you know, more than once. It's like, it's, he just, he, it, it's all I could do was work. Is, did he write any books? Yeah. 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 Hmm. He wrote, um, he wrote quite a few books on, um, he actually wrote my books that I went when I was in elementary school. He wrote like, uh, was it high school? Is junior high. I get, Carrie's telling me junior yeah, high school. Carrie's 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 sitting over wife. my shoulder. She's sit, she he's the assistant. The assistant's uh, yeah, helping yelling at me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he that, wrote my grammar or uh, junior high school books. That must have been really intimidating because I mean you're this kid who's a very quiet kid, and your dad's kind of flying all over the country to kind of help these other kids, and and uh, yeah, it, was it cool. sounds like he was, was very like, outspoken. It was cool. Like my friends would have him autograph their books, you know, in, in really? high school. Whatever. Yeah, it was funny. So he just was just very well received in it. Oh, as a joke. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it was just kind of like, haha, you know, it's your series of like books on, you know, uh, English stuff. He was, he kind of taught a lot of different things, but. Huh. Uh, um, so back to the Savage family. Yeah. So his father, Lieutenant William Savage, was Lieutenant um, Colonel full-time military for 30 years um he was a good guy a love, very loving guy fought in world war ii and uh, korea um he he got i think every you know every medal they give out except the purple heart because he didn't get shot you know but really? he uh, yeah. he did get reprimanded once 
I think it was World War Two because they were no, it must have been Korea, where they they were they had like the uh, uh, the local native people were helping them with it, and this kid went into the battle with them and didn't come out. And my grandfather pulled out with the troops and he turned around when he realized the kid wasn't there and he went back in alone after him into the jungle and he grabbed the kid and brought him out and he was like, they disciplined pretty heavily for it, you know? But, that's but he was like, that kid noble. was fighting with us. I'm taking him out with us, you know? That's some nobility right there. Yeah. I mean, that's like a noble, that's a, that, I mean, that's the story that like, you know, that's what you take the shit for. <laughs> you can take the hit right. for that one. That was like, yeah. you, 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 I'll take the demerit. You, you, I need that story. So, so he, he, so there's a lot of, so, so then, then what do we have? Cause I know you've gone, but you, I know you've actually traveled to Europe to kind of, kind of find your, the old savages. And the, the, the idea really is, is, is I'm fascinated with your sense of history. And I wonder how, when you look at the history of your family and the, the lineage and you look at the history of your family as Americans, I know that you have, you had, uh, you had told me before that one of your ancestors uh, was the one who helped find John Wilkes Booth after he assassinated uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So that was, so Bill's father was Lewis Savage. Um, no, Bill's father was Fred Savage. So who's Savage. Bill? Bill is my father's father. Okay. So your grandfather is Bill. Yeah. His father was um, Fred, who was um, Master Carpenter. Um, handmade sailboats actually but he um fred was this is the reason i always had a problem with the genealogy on the savage side is fred was given away basically as a kid um to the farms because his mother died um something we knew something happened to the father but we didn't know what all the kids there was like seven of them were just given away to all the local farms and Jeez. um he was kind of mistreated by the farm, you know, overworked, slept in the barn. Yeah. Right. You know, he was born in 1874. So I imagine growing up in that time period on the farms, kind of tough time period. Sure. Um, so he, he really never knew much about his family. He did reconnect with one brother. Um, they did go try to track down other siblings, but they didn't really want to acknowledge that they were ever part of the family. Um, luckily, Bill and his brother, the two youngest, didn't really remember their parents, so it was less traumatic for them. I think the older kids that remembered having the family and then being torn apart, it was really traumatic for them. They didn't want to go back to it, you know? And some of them even changed their name from Savage to whatever farm they went with. Um, so that made the genealogy really tough. I wound up being kind of cold called by two different cousins. And they said, yeah, you're our cousin, like, Lewis. Um, Wait, we, just who, strange people called you up to say that you're related to them? Yeah. And they so they sent me the paperwork, and I was like, okay, now it, it, it's starting to add up. Um, they basically made the link, and they found out who Lewis's parents were and what happened to him. Because we didn't know. We just knew the mother died, the kids got sent to the farm, something happened to the father. We heard something about being kicked by a horse, but that's all we knew. Um, it turns out that Lewis was, um, from Plattsburgh, New York. Um, he was born in 1844 and he signed up to join the 16th Calvary Company A with his cousin, Abraham Snay. And him and Snay served around Washington, DC. And they were the guys that ch chased, um, 
Oh, the white, the yeah, no, the white ghost, um, Mosby. I can't think of his first name. Mosby was basically the uh, the Confederate general uh, that was trying to hunt down, probably really kill Lincoln. Um, but they had these guys, the 16th Cavalry, there to guard the city, and they fought back and forth with them, and he literally brought them hell. But um, they did a good job at holding them back. The interesting thing is after the Civil War, um, and after um, when uh, once Ulysses uh, S. Grant became president, um, he wound up sitting down and having dinner quite often with uh, General Lee and uh, and Mosby. The thing about the Civil War that I find really interesting is the re that's the reason Grant did so well is all these guys went to West Point together. All, all the generals, Confederate and the Union guys. Right. So Grant knew what these guys were doing. He served in Mexico with uh, with General Lee. Um, so the playbook was already written the for play, all of them. He knew he knew how these guys thought. It was the way. That's I mean, besides the everybody says the numbers, the Union soldiers that we outnumbered them, but which we did. But um, we we uh, he also knew he he knew what they were going to do before before they did. You know. Because that was the set. That's the setup. That's what you're taught at West Point. Is yeah. everyone's learning the same way of of. That's why. Because he it's really crazy. Wasn't, he really wasn't the best soldier. Grant wasn't. But um, anyways, to get back to Lewis. Um, so Lewis was fighting off of um, that uh, Mosby. I wish I could remember his first name. They used to call him the White Ghost. Um, I'll look it up. Keep going. Keep going. So anyways, it's Lincoln gets assassinated. Um, right. And uh, would they they know it's John Wilkes Booth and Wilkes was um, he was a theater actor, um, one of the most famous yeah, at the time. At the time, like, he was huge. Yeah, I mean, like Brad Pitt. You know, the you name that the biggest, most famous actor in the United States, and that's John Wilkes Booth. Right. So John S. Know Mosby. John S. Mosby. Yeah, there the you go. Gray go. The gray ghost. The gray ghost, not the white ghost. Gray ghost. Yeah, the gray ghost. Um, he was so. Anyways, uh, Wilkes run. You know, winds up running and um, heading towards Maryland. Um, and he, they, the Union guys round up twenty five uh, Union soldiers to go after him, just on volunteer base. And my great great grandfather Lewis and his. Um, cousin Abraham Snay both volunteered um, and they rode down. I have like his deposition of like what he said after they captured him. But um, well, they surround him anyways at Garrett's barn and anybody can read it or as every, most everybody's heard the story anyways. But John Wilkes Booth was in this tobacco barn and tobacco barns, if anybody doesn't know, are kind of like open. You can see through the slats and some of them are even made. Because so you got to dry out the, dry out the leaves. Yeah. You want the wind to blow through them and you can, some of them you can lift up the sides and everything else. So, um, they had one of the union soldiers was this, uh, Corbett guy. It was kind of like, he's a little crazy. There's stories about that guy, but I won't say him on the podcast, but why? Uh, it's really pretty bad stuff. Like b bad is in what cannibalism. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he kind of oh. uh, bad. All right, all right. Well. People, people can look it up if they want to get gross. What's his, out, what's, but... what's the uh, let's, let's, what's his name again? His uh, his last name's Corbett. He's the Corbett. one that pulled the trigger on on Booth. But they had uh, Sergeant Baker um, and his I forget his side companion were going right. in. They were basically the FBI agents going into the barn to kind of negotiate like surrendering terms 
with Booth and Corbett thought Booth did something fast or whatever the story was, and um, he shot him. This is um, Thomas Boston Corbett. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and he was basically on the opposite. My Lewis was on the opposite side of the barn at the time when it when it shot. As they, I think Abraham was too, um, when the shot rang out. So then they they dragged him out and threw him in the threw him in the bag and took him back to bury him. But um, the rest of I think the other other there's another bunch of them. They rounded up like the people that helped with it. I think they hung six people. I could be wrong. I actually have the photograph of like um, of the hanging and stuff because I know like my great grandfather was there. A great great grandfather was there somewhere, but um, I don't ha actually have a photograph of him. And currently, we are working with a Civil War guy to try to track down a good photograph of uh you know the 16th cavalry company a um and hopefully we've got a photograph of abraham snay he lived he was the longest living one out of the um out of the 25 and out of the five of saranac um in new york state but um the one cool thing is lewis's headstone i did do like i did make a little monument for and uh my father's getting a plaque printed up and we're gonna go put that up this summer you are you are you have such a huge a grasp of your own history. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But his fa his father actually I don't know a ton about. His father was Francis Savage. Um, I don't I have a few things written by him, but I don't know a ton about him. He had quite a few kids. Um, his father was a really cool story. His name is uh, Thomas Savage. And Thomas was actually um, a shipwright, and he was from uh, the island of Guernsey off of, um, well, it's English, right. but it's, um, it's the Channel Islands, basically like Jersey and Guernsey, right off of France. And if anybody saw, um, uh, what was it? Oh, the Potato Peel Society, which is like a story about um, the Nazi invasion of Guernsey during World War II when Hitler thought that his, he he really thought that the way he was going to take England, because it's right across from London, um, right. was to take Guernsey. And he just armed this whole island and they were occupied, occupied. They would like, the, you know, the soldiers would go in and take over like, you know, the farmer's house and the farmer would have to live in the, his barn. And they would just go in and take all his pigs, all his cattle, and kill them all, and feed their troops. You know, it's just is awful. But that was a there's a there's kind of a cool movie about it. But anyways, um, this Thomas Savage was from Guernsey, and his uncle um did he his uncle was a captain of uh, I think two different ships. Um, they went back and forth into Montreal from Guernsey. Um. And actually, the like the fishing trade, even though Columbus claims he discovered America, whatever. But you know, the Guernsey men and and people, you know, uh, from Portugal and Spain, and all the, all the fishermen were fishing off of Newfoundland forever, you know, and getting the cod and everything. Like those trade routes were, they're already set up, but they didn't talk about it, you know, because they're good fishing spots, and you don't. That's not something you're necessarily going to share. Right. Yeah. Um, so they they knew what they were doing on the water, but they went back and forth quite a bit. But um, Thomas, who was um, 
Thomas's family was uh, had been on Guernsey since 1400s, and we went last summer, my wife and my father, and uh, we found like um, the medieval uh, La Savage house, which was really amazing to see. And I met like a couple of the cousins, and um, you know, got toured around, and it was it was really really unbelievable to go see the history and just like you know you know, touched like the walking stones, like to the, to the old house and just, yeah, we see, yeah, I got to go to the church and see headstones and, um, so it was just fascinating. So where do you, do you feel like when you look back on this history, do you ever think where do you fit in? Because, I mean, obviously, when you look back in these stories and you look back at the guy who, you know, your your great-great-grandfather, all these guys are doing all these things, the ship right here, and the guy tracked down, uh, helped track down John Wilkes Booth. Do you ever think, these are just blips in history? These are just, like, I know. droplets. It, 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 beca- it, it can become overwhelming. It's so shocking to me and how easily we're all forgotten. Like, most people only know within, like, th- three, four generations. Um you know, most people, if I said, can name me, name me, you know, like your great, great grandparents, like how many people could get through all of them? You know, a lot of people, they don't know. Um, and it's really easy to have stuff just lost and it's really easy to have, uh, you know, an alcoholic father that disappears early on or, um, you know, an accident that, you know, that's very common where somebody gets, you know, a parent gets taken out or, um, it's amazing how much like history and stories of families that have, that have great stories. It's the cool thing about genealogy is I've bumped into so many amazing stories that I'd be like, I mean, I don't know how many times Carrie and I have almost been in tears, like in like a town clerk's office when like, you're just reading like the death record of all their kids that these parents survived. And you're like, this is like, I can't imagine like they lost more than half their kids. Um, they, you know, it's just amazing how resilient and strong people are. And as you dig those lines up, you really, you really start to dig out the stories and reading the obituaries. And then, um, I don't know, like one example of like the trippy stuff that happened to me doing this stuff is I was like my mom's side, like um, her uh, her uh, great grandfather, my great great grandfather owned um, at the time, like the biggest granite quarry in the world. And um, he kind of worked him, worked his way up from being um, from being nothing. Uh, Canada farmer. His parents came over from Scotland and he. Uh, um, just an amazing man, um, you know, had an interest in, had an interest in, um, learning to cut granite and wound up rising up through the ranks and taking over the quarry and, and running it. And, uh, he died, he died kind of young, but he died kind of because of, from breathing in a lot of, um, the granite dust and stuff, which a lot right. of those guys did. Um, it's like psychosis but, or something. Like yeah. So something I was, in, I was in this antique shop last summer um, up in the town where the quarry is, the quarry is pretty cool. It's still there. I still, I'm kind of friends with the owners of it. Um, and, uh, they went, they gave me, uh, gave me like a free tour of the place and showed me the different well, stuff I mean, changed, on the but... backs of your grandfather. I mean, they should, yeah, I mean, they should but do it's a little a, bit more than a free, if they charge you for the tour, they're scum. No, they weren't. Now they gave me a bunch of stuff and 
toured me around. It was, it's very nice. Um, I saw him in this antique shop, like in that same town and looking to like, like they're a wealthy family. Like we have a lot of the stuff they had, but, um, but also when he died, my great, great grandmother, um, sold the, like the rest of the interest in the company to his brother and they ran it for quite a few years, but she took her two young girls and moved to Boston with them. Um, so they auctioned off like, you know, the contents of the house they had, uh, they also had our farmhouse that, that was run by other people, but they auctioned that off and they had a, they had a camp on, um, uh, like a local lake and they sold that off. And he actually had, he did have interest in, um, actually the business is still in business. It's, um, uh, Montreal, like, um, marble and granite company. Right. Um, and it's still owned by the Smith family up there. Um, but he had, uh, she sold the interest in that off too. But anyway, so I'm in this antique shop and Carrie goes, Hey, there's a Masonic book. And I was like, yeah, he's a Freemason. Like he was a member of all the like local clubs. Of, I would think you'd have to be if you're going to be in the granite business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we think so. And yeah, I'm very Vermont. It's all, um, it's, yeah. it, it's like a Masonic lodge in every corner, but so I'm flipping through all the photos of all these guys from like the 1900s and the antique guys, like, what are you looking for in that book? And I'm like, I'm looking for uh he goes, why don't you just buy it? And I was like, I tell you what, I'll buy it. <laughs> I'll buy it. If the picture of my great, great grandfather's in it. And he goes, well, who is it? And I go, like, it was Johnny Smith. Like he owned, like he owned rock of ages. He owned the quarry. And uh, he like, the guy just about sat down. He goes, are you kidding me? And I go, yeah. He goes, I owned his house for like 40 years, like whatever he goes, I, um, he goes, I had your great grandmother up and showed it to her and she gave him a history of it. Cause it's owned by one family in between. Um, but he took it over after and he had all this stuff from the house. I mean, not big deal stuff. Like he had like a sink from the, from the barn. Um, he's got the weather vane off the house, which is really cool. I want it, but it's uh really expensive in his antique shop, but did he make you buy the book? Yeah, I bought the book. Yeah, because I found <laughs> I found give me the book. Yeah, I found ah. his picture in it, and I found there was also a picture of his brothers in it, and there was also a picture of my great great grandmother's brother who actually built his house, um, who I never had a picture of. So that was really cool to find. So yeah, and this since is, okay, then, sorry, go ahead, keep going. No, I only wanted a story with it. So yeah, I go, please. I go back up this summer to to like collect because he's been digging around and finding more stuff from the house so he just gave me a bunch of stuff from the house and uh when i walked in there the guy that came in right behind me was the guy he goes the guy he almost the antique dealer almost fell down again he goes you know who just walked in behind you he goes it's like the great great grandson of the second owner of the house and i was like are you serious like what how kind surreal of is that what kind of fucking crazy places you walking into <laughs> it's yeah, like, I was like hey look surreal. at the, you know who that is that's the guy who that was the cab driver who who brought your mother to the hospital yeah i thought it was so cool so anyways it was cool to meet you know everybody and um you know just the that connection and the history i think is really cool and i think you know finding those stories and um you know that antique dealer knew a lot of the stories about his family, I think even more so than my mom, grandmother, great grandmother did. Cause he, he was up there, um, and knew the other families that had stayed around and heard those, their stories too. So what's the next step in the history of the Savage family? 
Because I, 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 yeah, I want to know what's your next big thing. Because uh, clearly, you like this is. I mean, I haven't even honest... talked like war stuff. I've got like revolutionary war stuff. That's well, give really me a cool, good story. But... Give us a good story. Give us a crazy story. Um, because I know I got a feeling like you have like dreams like, and I'm dreams obsessed. and dreams. Yeah, I'm obsessed with like the history in New York State, like that happened on the New York State side of Lake Champlain, because I had so many relatives like fight in, um, you know, the French and Indian Wars and um, the Re- Revolutionary War, um, you know, kind of in and out of Vermont, Massachusetts, in in New York State, and um, I supposedly have Mohawk blood, but I've never been able to prove that on paper even though i've been to the reservation a bunch of times but i only know the stories from my great grandmother well, that said we were Mohawk. but don't you well, she, why don't you get 23 and me why don't you get a genetic it doesn't testing? it doesn't show but the natives are really um have been really tight about guarding a lot of their dna um so you think that if you took, but if you take, if you take like the DNA test, they're going to tell you if you have Native American blood to a certain degree. I mean, we yeah. we all did it. And my 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 kid has got like Mongol blood. Yeah, that's from awesome. all the families in family the the families in uh, all all of our families from Russia. Somebody, some Mongol got in a yurt and made it happen. Yeah, but, I and, and then and then my kid walks around. Calling, referring to herself as the Mongol, she got like two less than two percent Mongol DNA. I'd imagine if you got the twenty three and me, and get yourself, you know, spit in a cup, I'm sure you could figure out if you had a little bit of Mohawk in you. Yeah, I mean, I don't I mean to be it, so cavalier, but I mean, it just seems to me like that's the move. Yeah, I yes and no. I think like the DNA changes quite a bit too. Um, I know, like we did my grandmother's, and it's changed. I don't know how many emails I've got where it's been like, she's been like Viking to like, you know, Italian to all of a sudden a hundred percent French to not French at all. All of a sudden mm. like a UK. Oh, so you think so, like it's a as their situation. information is, is grown as they're gathering their, their DNA bank. So I don't think we have a full picture yet of what, what it is they're looking at. I think we will, but I don't think it's happened. Happened well, yet. Here- we did in our families. My wife got it, I got it, and our daughter got it. So then you can kind of cross check some things, you know? Yeah, that's because cool. like if you if you do that, then all of a sudden there's a little bit of cross reference. The, the, the Mongol thing, all of a sudden it skipped to hers. But other than that, we're just like, well, you know, somebody how did that happen? You know, but she wanted. To, you know, I was like, ah, I don't know about this Mongol business. I don't think I don't. I think it's so deep, deep, deep. I don't know if I even believe it. I said, I don't have it in my in my blood. And she goes, Well, you're not a Mongol. So you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't know. Well, sometimes you you carry things and you drop things too. You know, you don't necessarily show them. All right, give me a like if you. Oh, you want a rev war story? I want you to give me the craziest savage story of all time. I want I want the number one. This is bananas. Buckle up your seatbelts. This shit's about to get sick. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I have anything that's that good, but all right. Well, you know, give me the number two then. Give me some. Um, I, th- I mean, I have the like the cool like the history in New York and like having um, you know grandfathers that have fought in all those wars in New York State. I always thought it was really cool, and I always liked going and walking in the graveyards and going to like Fort Ticonderoga and Fort William Henry and um, the Crown Point for um, up near Middlebury, Vermont. Uh, I just always thought like those places always mean a lot. I had like um, 
Brotherton Seward um, on my mom's side, like he died like walking from Massachusetts to Fort Ticonderoga there during the Revolutionary War. Um, and Thomas Savage, who came from Guernsey, he fought and uh, he came over as a French soldier and fought in the French and Indian Wars and then served under Mosin, Moses Hazen, who would basically take over Lafayette's army in Washington and Lafayette. Um, I don't know if anybody read like Lafayette's biography, but it's pretty amazing. Um, my, my listeners don't read. No, well, who knows? But the, <laughs> the story of that guy's life was amazing. But um, yeah, all that history has really meant a lot to me. But but I, I think when know. like go ahead. I, I was just gonna say one cool story was um, I had on my grandmother's side. My father went to City Hall to pull my grandmother's birth certificate, and I can't remember why. Um, and he found out the name of her father was blank and we always thought it was this guy that my great grandmother was married to that died like three died when my grandmother was three and um my great grandmother was had passed at the time and my father went to his great aunt and she told him no it wasn't it wasn't this guy that she was married to the real father was this other guy this last name butterfly and um, last name is butterfly Last name was Butterfly, and he was like, oh, really? So we, we wound up – I did quite a bit of research on it. My grandmother really never wanted to talk about it or acknowledge it, and, you know, we just left it alone. And um, this woman shows up at my door one day, and she she speaks to my wife, and she was – the people that used to own my house, last name was Butterly, which is another weird, unique name. And she goes, we're looking for butterflies, like people with the butterfly name. And Carrie, knowing the story of my family history, was like, oh, my God, like my husband's family is butterfly, but he never knew them. Well, she goes, well, my dad was a butterfly, but I never knew him because he died young. So I came home from work and um, met her and we sat and talked. And it turned out we were like basically uh, she's first cousins with my father. Her father. I think I forget how it is. Maybe it must be second cousins. Um, like her father and my father's, uh, grandfather were, were like, um, I don't know, father and nephew or whatever, or, uh, you know what I mean? Uncle and nephew. Um, yeah, so it was pretty interesting, but anyway, so really cool to make that connection, but it was like, it's amazing how serendipity like that she just happened to show up and then. We both looked down and there was a children's book that one of my kids had brought home from the local library that said How to Hide a Butterfly. That was the name of the book. And I was like, that's crazy. That's bizarre. Isn't that bizarre? I thought that was just such a cool, cool, unique. I'm not surprised. You seem to like, you seem to like will these things up. You're going to know, you're going to antique stores with people who know your ancestors. You know, once they put my head to it, stuff starts appearing. Because all of a sudden, you, you know, you have you have people calling you up saying, you know, you know, trying to figure out if you're your cousins, and that is there is something there. I mean, obviously, you kind of like put me. I don't know. I don't. I'm not a big into like, you know, I'm putting it out into the universe and seeing what happens. But it just seems like it's almost too coincidental. Well, yeah, that's just it. There's things that are just like, how odd is that? Like, how cool is that too, though? You know. So, um, just to transition a little bit. 
I'll transition yep. a little bit. Your fascination with history is like, I mean, you know, we could do, you know, hours and hours and I mean, days. I on... Yeah, I could talk family genealogy until you fall asleep. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, we... let's not do that. No, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but I'm interested. I'm interested in I'm interested in how you have kind of transitioned into blacksmithing as a blacksmith. And it's because, you know, when I first started doing it, it was less old. It wasn't, I didn't go to a place that was old school. I went to a place that was, we were doing, um, we were, I was learning how to be a fabricator and I'll do that again. (laughs) I was learning how to be a fabricator and we were doing kind of high end restoration stuff. So it wasn't like, coke forges and old school techniques as much it was a little bit more closer to being a fabricator and we were using kind of more current techniques now what i've always felt with you is as a blacksmith is you kind of like really kind of accepted and 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 use the older school techniques but and 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 celebrated the history of blacksmithing yeah i i think that's true i mean i found the history of it first really before i found like the actual you know, blacksmithing is the trade. Um, I do love the history, but in no way am I, um, and I do loving like traditional forge welding and all that stuff, but I'm not a purist by any means. And I think it's totally cool that somebody uses a machine welder and incorporates it with, with forge work. I love that stuff. Personally, a lot of people that are purists, like only want to see stuff done. Um, you know, with like a a bellows or a hand crank forge and, um, you know, no power hammer, no, like, you know, the only one is staying. I'm, I'm definitely not that guy, but I do, I do want to celebrate the history of it. And I do want to take the slow way at the same time and just kind of enjoy the process when, when I can afford to. But it makes sense because, you know, when you talk about like the history, usually what happens is as things progress, the history kind of pushes, uh, you know, uh, progress pushes away, his pushes away old school thought and old school history. You know, back in the day when I was at the Center for Mental Arts at Uriehoff, he said that if, you know, Francis Whitaker had a TIG welder, he'd use it. You know, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of old school guys who would be using current technology if it was available. And I totally felt the same way. I'm just like, yeah, if you want to use a MIG welder, use a MIG welder. Fine. But the thing is, is I appreciate what the old school guys are doing is because you don't want that history to be lost. You don't want that technique to be lost because it just washes away with time. I mean, you're like we were saying, you're just a blip and you're just a blip in the in the in the universe and as time just washes past you know you lose all that information so easy yeah i used to find it like i even still struggle with now like stamping my name on anything i made i'm like who the hell cares and who the hell is going to remember me you know it's like we're kind of here for a moment and then gone you know but you don't but that's but you but you don't that's that now we're interesting because you're so obsessed with your 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 family's history but you're just like, why would anyone care? But what the funny thing is, is if like, you know, the Jesse Savage of the future would be fascinated by anything that, you know, modern day Jap- Jesse Savage stamps. You understand yeah. that like you're actually making something for that family history. You know, obviously your family history is so long and deep. They were, you know, it's, it's not, my family history is fucking shallow. I mean, it's, I mean, literally we go back to the grandparents and that's it. 
you know, because they're all yeah. over the place. But I mean, with yours, it's such a rich oral tradition. And with you being a genealogist, you've got to stamp every fucking thing you have because future, the future savages are going to want to know. Yeah. I mean, in theory, that stuff's cool. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the, um, personal search in genealogy is almost to just validate your own existence in some way too, to justify it in some way. So, you it, know, maybe it's, maybe it's a selfish thing too. It is. a Well, I mean, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder about, I wonder about the, the, you know, the, the narcissism of tradition in general. Um, but at the same time, and I don't want to bore everybody. Um, I, what I'm fascinated about what you do as a blacksmith is, you know, I know that you you have you have a very wide range of information in regards to anvils and hit the history and techniques and stuff, but the, the the things that you choose to make, I always find to be kind of really kind of cutting edge in terms of the design. Like I have a few like things that from you. crazy slingshot. <laughs> yeah, you made this wild <laughs> slingshot out of braided uh, three eighths steel. I'm assuming it's three eighths or quarter inch. Yeah, it's quarter inch. So you made this braid, this braided slingshot, which I thought was beautiful and amazing. And then you started using it. You made me a belt buckle that's just stunning. I'm wearing it right as we speak. I love it. And you also, you know, you've done so many different types of uh, bottle openers, but one I had to have. It was it was almost like a carabiner. It was this design that was just so well executed, but it was just so not from you know, the past. Like, I always feel like you use these techniques and you use these, this history and you're not just making it for, um, you're not just doing this old school stuff. You're doing stuff that's very, very current in your, your, your design. Mm -hmm. I have, I just think that you're more innovative than you give yourself credit for. Yeah, maybe. I, I I don't like, I, the, the slingshot, for example, was like, um, I don't know how to say it. I, I would like literally sit and think about making it for a year and never do it because I never come, could come up with a design good enough. So I made myself buy this slingshot bands because I wanted to make a slingshot just so right. I could like shoot it in the backyard. And, um, and then I thought, well, I go, damn, that stupid braided steel handle I've done on fire, fire pokers, like you, you name it. Like it's a quick handle. You can like braid up and weld on anything. Um, and it, I like it better than like, you know, the baskets that you see all the time. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was like, I could do that. That'd be a cool one, even though it's like simple, but at least it will like put a slingshot in my hand. And then I did it and made it. And I was like, I made a couple of them and I was like, actually, maybe I don't need to overthinking. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. Maybe this is all it needs to be. And what if, what, maybe it's okay that it's just this simple, easy thing. It's tough with like the guys that like, you know, John Cliff, like, you know, Ben Snare, like Fire Forge, like Jake Ferrum, Patrick Quinn, like all these guys that are absolutely amazing blacksmiths and, and the work they do just it for for me it can almost ground me to the point that they're just so good at it that I almost like it's how crippling. do I even like how do I even like attempt to even do anything? It's just right. going to be crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but that's the, but that's the best because that's how you improve. I mean, you don't want to be, you, you don't want to be the best guy in the room. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I totally feel the same way. Like I, I, I just got a hammer from Cliff and I'm just like, this guy, He's unbelievable. Like, I can never do an, I can, I can't, I'm not going to even, I got all this hammer steel. I'm like, why even bother? 
I just give it all to John and Cliff. You know, it's like, I don't, what do I, what do I, what do I even fool around with? I, I have a couple questions from some of the viewers, uh, from the listeners of the podcast for you directly. Okay. Um, this one comes from uh, Joshua Deaver. Uh, what's the biggest aha moment you had in smithing and how does it translate to uh, your day-to-day practices? So what was the moment in, in when you started to learn how to forge that really kind of changed the way you, you like really understood it? Um, I don't know. I've had like a lot of epiphanies forging. Um, I think one thing forging when I first started was, um, forge welding was like this scary thing that, you know, when I started, like people weren't doing Damascus knives like they are now, it was right. like a common thing. People doing like a faggot forge where you're just forging a bundle together, which is relatively an easy forge. But, um, in the beginning, like, oh, you didn't see a lot of that stuff. So like a lot of people didn't do it unless you're a really hardcore traditionalist. Right. Um, they would just machine weld it or whatever, you know, you make a set of tongs, like I'll just machine weld on the rings. Why am I going to bother forge welding it? Um, so once I took the time to like teach myself forge welding and realizing that, well, I understand why you can do it with, I can understand you do it with a machine, but the fire is right there. It's already hot. Um, and once I found like one little trick I do welding is, um, usually like when you're doing like a jump weld, a lap weld, like, um, you know, you do your scarves or whatever, or, like however you want to do it. Um, like for a set of tongs, right. Instead of going that distance from the fire to the anvil, you, that's where like everything that bad's going to happen. Like the well is going to be contaminated and, uh, it's not going to stick. You're going to lose your heat. You're either going to overburn it or, um, or you, you know, it's like kind of crooked and then you're trying to straighten things or you don't get enough meat on it and it goes too thin. Um, I wound up doing it, having a little piece of steel in the forge and just pulling like those two pieces right to it. You can actually pinch it together inside the fire. And I've done that a ton. What do you mean? A set set of tongs and have the, have the weld happen right in the fire. Like why do you understand? So you're putting them together and then you're actually using a pair of tongs to hold them in the fire. Well, I'm not holding them together. I'm waiting for those two bodies to come to a welding heat separately. And then I'm putting them together in the fire and pinching them with another set of tongs. Okay. And that tack that tack welds it, so you can then continue your weld and then bring it to the anvil and then start to like not only finish that weld but shape that weld. Um, that, and that, that was kind of like, oh, this so it just made it easier. Like, why am I running all the way over to the anvil every time? You know. I would be, I, I bet that would help a lot of uh, Damascus guys too. Yeah. Be, well, with Damascus, it's like the weld's basically already happening. Like you just yeah you could you could basically make that compression inside the fire. To make yourself, you know, feel better, but um, you know, like those bodies are basically fused together. I mean, the, your first when you pull it out the first time, you can pretty much just smack it on an anvil, and it's, you know, you get that tack. But um, yeah, you could definitely use like a if you made like a big set of tongs that you could get a lot of compression out of that covered the whole area, so you could like you know apply like even pressure. That would probably be a good way to do it. But I also use coal. Like a lot of those guys are using um, gas gas for forge welding, which is um, I've done it both ways. And actually the nicest like Damascus I ever made was out of a gas forge. Um, 
but like that high carbon steel welds is you know as people know at like a lower temperature so you can get away with kind of doing it in gas where if you're using mild steel wrought iron you've got to have a higher temperature so um i know you can you can weld in gas with wrought iron and in uh, mild steel but for me you know it just seems easier in in, in uh, coal all right steven brady's know. got a question for you what's your greatest okay. fear both personal My and professional what's your greatest fear greatest fear that's kind of a funny one what's your give me a, give me one of your what do you what if, makes you afraid um i don't know i guess maybe not being able to have the freedom to like you know explore um different things like being creative like forging or whether it be just like like i bought a wood lathe this past winter you know um you know i hope to be able to kind of um retire out of all the other things i do in life and like just focus on you know building things and selling things and i kind of hope to have the chance to to do it a hundred percent full time at some point. Well, you have that freedom because unlike other makers, you have a, you have a job, you have a regular job. And then that regular job allows you to, when you go in the shop, you have a little bit more freedom in terms of what you can do and what you want to do. Yeah. I've been told that by quite a few people that do it full time. And they're like, look, you really have more free time to play around than I do. You know? No, Um, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I I get that too, um, and I can afford to bankroll myself too, you know, and and um, you know, to a point with it. So, I think that a lot of makers, you know, they'll take a class or they'll learn something or they'll just do something on the weekend or someone's away and then they just decide to make a hammer. Like I've been that in that direction. And then all of a sudden they're just like, this is so much fun. I want to do this all the time. I want to do this as my job. I want to make this a business. And I don't think that they realize that sometimes the thing that you love that you think you're going to keep loving, you might fall out of love with. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I, I have done that with the blacksmithing stuff to the point where when I was doing a lot of wholesale stuff and just saying yes to everything that was asked, you know, that I got definitely my wife and I in, in over our heads as far as like what our time capacity was that we had time for, you know, with the kids and the house and the dog and um, both of us working too, but her, it's kind of hard to say no to money. You know, yeah, not, but you don't want to let people down either. Like I had relationships with some of these business owners, you know? Right. And they loved Uh, what I made and I was happy that they loved what I made and wanted to buy more of it, you know? Um, Yeah. But I I scaled up, I scaled back out of a lot of that stuff just because it started to really tax me. That's the hardest part. That's the, that's the unknown quantity. That's the quandary that you learn. When you get into it, because all of a sudden it's like, you know, you could make, you know, let's say you make 10 bottle openers in a day and you're pretty pumped about it. You're like, I can make a business out of it. And all of a sudden you're only making business. You're only making money when you have to do a hundred bottle openers a day. So it, right. it, that scalability of it makes it just, you know, this pleasure into a disaster, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me personally, 
you know, when I started making knives, it was fun and I thought I could make money and I really wanted to be a business. I mean, on my free time, do I want to make an, uh, a knife? No. <laughs> I mean, cause it's just like, I've had enough, but like, I don't, I, it, it's still, I'm far more interested in as a business as opposed to the one thing that I'm making. Mm-hmm. Here's a good Yeah. Question. I mean, I, I don't, I'm surprised with you that you haven't really completely burned out on it. Cause no, you, you I want to be it, business. You push it really hard. I want to be a business though. Like to yeah, me, it's far more interesting. I, for me, this is a question of like, can I be, my, my, my father was very successful. My grandfather was very successful. I want to be able to, to, I want to be able to have a business that supports my family. I'm not going to work in a, in a restaurant. Like those days are over. You know, that was mm-hmm. a huge mis- That sidestep for me was a huge mistake because I had gotten in there thinking that it was going to be a safe bet for me if, you know, the sculpture thing didn't work out. But it is a young man's game. And I really, I had, there were times where I was going to the restaurant and I was working six days a week and I was coming home at two o'clock in the morning. And then all I had left with me, with my wife was Sundays. And it was like, I mean, she'd walk me to the subway on, on Mondays. She would be, she was doing nursing school at night and I was in the restaurants. She'd cry. She'd hold my hand while I walked to the subway and cry because she wouldn't see me for seven, six, six more days. We were, it was terrible. I mean, it's not for, it was terrible. It was really bad. Like I didn't think I, and I had to quit. I love my job. I love working for the, my boss. I love the satisfaction of, you know, being, making the business successful. I, I liked that. I gave me my own personal value. Like it gave me, all right, well, you're not human garbage, but at the same time, it was going to ruin my marriage because, and it wasn't going to ruin my marriage because uh, yes, I did start smoking again. And yes, maybe I was drinking a little bit too much, but it was, it was ruining because there was no time for my family. Right. You know, and, 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 and it was, this business now has been successful because it came at a time where I had worked for a metal shop. I was totally burned out. I was, inv- I was asked to work for this Fakakta friend of mine who gave me this, you know, he sold me on this like dream job as like a car, a car, uh, one of his contractor carpenter. And it was like, it was a disaster. And he ended up, you know, unceremoniously letting me go on a Friday after we installed a job, which was like, you know, fuck you. So at the time it, I had to make it work because I wanted to make it work, but also because my, my daughter, I needed my, someone needed to be around for my daughter. So it was, it was, it was a, it all worked out. Now I'm at the point now where I have to fucking push harder because we need to increase volume so we can make more money, you know? So the problem is, is like my, I still love forging. Like I, if, if, if I could have a day off, uh, just to forge, that would be great. You know, forging integral knives or, you know, bottle openers or whatever. I love it. But like the day-to-day making money to make this job successful, that's where I get my love of it. It's the final. Yeah. It's the final. I need the bigger picture. And thank God I worked in fabrication shops where, you know, you could work on pickets for, you know, you're making pickets for weeks and weeks and weeks and you don't see an end in sight. And then once you put the whole thing together, there's the satisfaction, you know. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with this as a business. But yeah, I, mean, I did. I, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, the one thing that I really liked about how you run your business is how you incorporate the chefs and that you do like, a, you know, the line and knives that they want to use and it's kind of their signature thing. It's, um, 
that's really cool. Like that did like involve like your community of, you know, especially you being in near New York anyways. Well, um, it's been fun. I mean, it's been, it, it was in the beginning when we first started doing it, I would do these collaborations with chefs, Charlie Palmer and Brian Voltaggio. A lot of it was because I needed their, you know, clout. Like Brian Voltaggio, he was on uh, Top Chef for a long time. I knew him when he was a cook at Oriole. And Charlie Palmer is, a, you know, the one of the biggest names in American cuisine. They supported me, and it was like I was using their clout to help me move this, and they were very generous. I mean, no one, none of the chefs I've ever worked with really did it for the money. I mean, we would really offer them a percentage and give them a knife and, you know, a couple extra if they need it. But we were, it was always going to their uh, charities or something like that, which has been a lot of fun. Now we're at the point now where all of our business is coming from our previous customers, which is great. So we've transitioned between, like we were doing it with uh, Iron Chef uh, Mark Forgione, and three quarters of the knives sold were our customers. They weren't like new names. So we're now getting to the point now where it's a lot more fun because we're branching out with chefs that might not be they don't need to be household names we want to get like we want cooks cooks like we're about to do uh we're doing these night these serrated knives with the chef who's known for making you know he, he's worked at a lot of great restaurants but like on instagram he makes the baddest ass sandwiches you've ever had and i was just like and he was a friend of tony's and i was just like maybe we should do a sandwich knife with him and we approached him and he was super pumped and we just moved 50 of them which was yeah that's crazy awesome. which is crazy and we're about to do some in the winter with these two uh, these two butchers. We're going to do some butcher knives, and it's it's now it's gotten to the point where we can have fun. It's not like I don't you know in the beginning it was just like well, I don't think he's you know the chef's doing his Instagram right, or we would mm-hmm. you know Tony and I would be like you know grumbling about whether somebody moved any enough knives and now we have the business has grown to the point now where you know we're definitely good for between 30 and 50 knives on a batch which has been great do you get a lot of people that are asked for uh carbon steel um i would say no and this is the reason why and it's interesting so if you know I do stainless steel and carbon steel knives. I'd say 95% of my knives are stainless steel. And I love this reasoning. The reason is because a lot of my customers are first-time custom knife buyers. That's what I love. I love that. Because I would rather give someone what they're used to and be the stepping stone into this. Part of that is because I, when I first started making sculpture, I wanted... I wanted... I was a fan of Keith Haring. Keith Haring was my favorite artist, and he was the guy who did the crack is wax symbol, and he did uh, these cartoony bodies and tons of work on racism, tons of work on uh, AIDS activism. And he was a part of the New York art scene because his work was very approachable. You know, you saw it everywhere. It was like kind of graffiti, but at the same time, it wasn't. I've always thought that art should be approachable. It shouldn't be something that you have to go to a gallery to see. So when I started making sculpture, I really wanted my prices to be approachable. I wanted I didn't want people to gasp when they saw the prices of my sculpture. I would rather keep working on the volume to keep me busy. And I want this in somebody's house. So when I made the, started doing the knives, I did the same thing. I didn't want to I didn't want anyone to gasp when they got my price. And they don't. I once in a while you get a jerk off who, who makes a comment saying, Why is it so expensive? But I mean my prices are like, you know, around, you know, in and around for a nine inch chef's knife under five hundred dollars, which is about, you know, below middle middle of the road, which I like. You know? Yeah, that is cheap. 
you know, for, well, don't, we don't say cheap. In well, not cheap, yeah. cheap. We we say uh, value. value. We uh, say value. <laughs> Come on, you got to upsell me here. Come on, man. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's been one of those things where I would rather have, and that's why when I look at people like knife makers that that I value personally, it's like guys like Quentin Middleton, Jared Thatcher, Jonathan Porter, uh, Tomer for Florentine Kitchen Knives. Those are the four guys that I look at in terms of. These are the business guys that I want to talk to and I want to know about because they're all kind of in that same, they, they're in that business mind. So back to carbon versus stainless. When I first started making carbon steel knives, it, they were, I loved them because they were all forged and I love forging. But like I get these calls for people being like, yo, I love this knife, but why is it changing color? Why is it rusting? And I really was just like, well, I mean, that's the way it works. And they were like, yeah, I'm not really used to that. So I really wanted to invest in stainless steel for the reason people just don't know. I mean, you're in the know in terms of being a blacksmith and you understand, you know, why this stuff is why, what it is. But most, you know, your most average customers, um, most average home cooks and stuff like that, they really don't know the difference, you know. And, and I would rather give someone that they feel, they feel comfortable with. And it, when you have to start to explain to them this is what you should be using and this is what's right i think that's a flaw i think you know when i when I, anytime i think about the business i've learned it's always from from my my uh, my mentor and my first restaurant guy charlie palmer used to say give the people what they want and stainless steel is very approachable and you don't have to get depressed when it changes color or rusts hmm you know, I made a knife uh, when I, the last time I saw, uh, I was at the Center for Metal Arts for a class. I took a class with Nick Anger. And Nick's such a great guy. You know Nick. Oh, yeah, he's, he's I, a saint. He's I haven't a, been to see him at all this year, but he I, invited, I need to get back he, up there. He wanted, he wanted us to come on. I, we got to come on. He's he's a blast. I saw him in the city. He's just a, he's just a, he is, I'm so glad a guy like him is in the world. He's such a banana. But he, but he, you know, I made a, a, um, I made a Damascus chef's knife under his guidance and I loved it because I'd never done it before. And it, I just loved learning from Nick and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, I, I don't know what happened. I put it in the drawer, I, you know, whatever. And then after not using it for a long time, I noticed I pulled it out and there was like this giant rust spot. And I was like, what the fuck? This is, and it depressed me so much. I spent so much time on it. I was just like, fuck this knife i don't want to deal with it i ended up redoing the whole thing but it was mm -hmm. just like i don't want my customers to like go through the process of picking what they want and, and we go through i send them all the emails and watch the knife being born and all that and then for them to like put it away and then for some reason something happens and they're just kind of like eh, this has bummed me out so i i usually tell my customers if you're not 100 percent sure of the difference between carbon and stainless it never hurts to do stainless right and then, because I learned from Jared Thatcher and uh, Tomer Botner, the mustard patina, the mustard patina has been a great way to get people into carbon steel because you're basically like, if you give a real nice, and this is not knife talk, by the way, this is the full, if, you've, if you're tuning in now, this is, not, this is the full blast podcast with Jesse Savage. You, you, if you put a, the mustard patina, you force a patina on, then you're not automatically going to get something blotchy. Like if you cut like, a, yeah, you know, so you're I do able like to those mustard patinas too. I think they look just as good as, as Damascus in some ways. I, they're beautiful because they give you a nice, even, you know, 
starting point and they'll change over time. Like I had a mustard patina knife I got from Tomer and as I'm using it, you know, it's definitely changing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a good way to get people into it because they're just not like, if you're cutting some, if you're just using the tip of the knife all the time and it just gets patina at the tip of the knife, you know, that can kind of like bum you out. But if you start off with the whole thing patinaed, you're actually giving someone like a starting point where it's going to still look good and you're not going to be shocked when you, you know, you know, but. You know, I've got a, I've got a different question for you. Go ahead. Uh, like it's Hit culinary. Me. Is Go there, ahead. now you, you worked at Center for Middle Arts and helped uh, Yuri Hoffi teach classes, the right. famous blacksmith. Um, yeah. Everyone calls him Yuri because they Yuri. watch too many, like they watch too many like cartoons. It's actually Uri. That's the that's the number one yeah, thing everyone calls him. Yuri, it's Uri. They call him. They, they, everyone mispronounces. And he don't hear any. He can't. He's deaf as a doornail, so he don't even care. Now, did he watching him forge, being like a master blacksmith? And um, I know he's got a different style. Is there anything the way he approaches iron, the way he approaches like working? Is there any like style of his that you applied to like you know the cooking world? I, you know, I, I really, that's a great question because I'm, I am convinced, I mean, blacksmithing changed my life in terms of being able to visualize how to do things, even to, even to the, even to how I do things like this podcast, like part of blacksmithing is a hundred percent. And this is fascinating because of you, because you're a little bit, you don't, you don't like to be as organized because I mean, I'm just saying you, I'm not, I didn't mean it like that. I meant it like, like when you're in school, I think you had a hard time in school, but the, 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 the mindset of blacksmithing is you just can't fuck around. That's why that's you have to be super, super exactly understand what you're doing. So what he would do is he would do a demo and then he'd have us do our steps and we had to do the steps and if you fucked up the steps, he'd yell at you. So you really don't want to be yelled at. So you're being very conscious that you're doing things right. And if you're not 100% focused on what you're doing and you do these kind of fake taps and this stuff to make it look like you're working, he would see right through it and he would scream, what are you doing? And in the beginning, you get nervous because you're just like this old dude is just, you know, he's picking on me or screaming at me. But then all of a sudden you realize if you pay attention and you're organized and you know all those steps you're you're going to complete the task in the way that you're supposed to. So what I learned from him was, well, number one, in the beginning, I was like, just don't get yelled at. So if don't, here's how you don't get yelled at, don't fuck around. And don't do the tapping on the anvil and do the tippy taps and then staring at it like you're, you're like, a, you know, you're staring at it like you're an artist with your thumb up and you're just like pondering. Don't do that shit because then he'll just, he would just yell at you, say, stop playing. You know, he was very cut and dry. Um... I learned how to be way more organized with everything and it helped my cooking. It helped my business. It helped my mindset like day to day. My day to day business is based on the things I learned from Uri, which is every morning I have to have like half an hour before I come to the shop where I'm, I know exactly what I'm doing between now and lunch. And then I know exactly what I'm doing between lunch and when I leave. And otherwise if you just come into your shop just not knowing what you're doing you're screwed yeah and it's, it's, and it's a, your order operations you know it's like figuring out the process i'm telling you it has made my life so much better because you don't have this dread and this doubt like I, we just sold 50 of these serrated knives so i know what i need to do between and i'm going to deliver them by the middle of middle or end of october i don't have a lot of time 
But even now, when I, we started selling him, I started preparing myself, like getting the wood dry, and I'm ordering all the Corby bolts, and then I'm going to order the G10, and then I'm getting the laser cut template made, and I know I get the belts. I'm preparing myself for every step so it's not daunting. If you think about having to do 50 knives, and I'm going to probably, I don't know when I'm going to start them, but like in three months on top of everything else, it can be overwhelming. But if you're super organized and you understand what you're doing day to day, it takes away all the 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 it takes away all the nervousness because you're just you're planning everything out, you know. And that's in terms of the culinary world that has totally helped me out because I'm very when I cook now I'm very organized and like all right this is what we're gonna have here's the ingredients I'll do all the mise en place I'll do all the cuts I'll do I'll prep everything and then you prep everything and then you can have fun you know I, I that has he has he has changed the way I see everything and now blacksmithing in general is how it's changed my life because I do everything I do well or passable or I'm not embarrassed or it wasn't a disaster is because I'm hyper focused on being as prepared as possible and as organized as possible. But, and I, and I owe it all to him because he just made, you know, you just, you can forge and you know, most of the people we, and you know, this too, most of the people who are metal workers or whatever, they do what we call, what I used to call, you know, uh, metalworking voodoo, which is that they're just, they're just passing shit off because other people just don't know what it is, you know. But when you deal with him and you, you deal with, you know, how you can get better and how you can be closer to Cliff Dufton or, or uh, John Ariani in terms of your proficiency, you all of a sudden you see how, how the fat's trimmed off. And then you get to the concentration of the real beauty of, you know, blacksmithing and how blacksmithing translates to everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, really. That's true. I mean, you know that. And I I would imagine that you could feel the same. You would say the same thing where, you know, it's it's there's nothing worse than having the forge on, having a piece of steel and just deciding to experiment. I think when people start talking experiment, I always roll my eyes because I'm just like, hey, you're just fucking around, which is fine. But let's just not make this sound like you're about to like discover a, like you know, the neutron or something. You know, it's like I mean, you're you're gonna slap some steel around and it's gonna look like shit, and you know maybe you might find something good, maybe you might not. Yeah, absolutely. I think like for me, like even um, you know, like I think just forging and making things has made my focus to you know attention to detail so much more um, that it goes into different areas of my life, even like falling back into getting back into archery um, and shooting a lot of my antique uh, recurve bows that it's really amazing. I mean, you're aiming at that target and you're, you, you know, you're somewhat looking down the arrow and you're, and you're, you're feeling your arm push forward and you're feeling your arm pull back Yeah, and you're drilling that spot on the target in like you're shooting a basketball or you're picking that spot, but it's been so much fun like shooting lately with just it not mattering if I hit the target or not. And, uh, you know, just kind of letting that arrow fly. And when you hit that moment of, uh, you know, kind of just meditation, just bliss where you stop thinking about what you're doing and you're just, your whole body falls in complete line with it. And all of a sudden the arrow is released and then you hit exactly where you're aiming. It just seems pretty amazing. And I think, through forging, like I've definitely developed that attention. I I I don't really I don't really do archery, but the, as soon as you started talking about that, it reminded me of fly fishing, 
Because yeah, yeah. Fly fishing. I learned my dad. My dad was such an asshole. He 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 went fly fishing <laughs> all over the world. He never took me. He saw my lures. He never took me fucking fishing. He would go fly fishing in Patagonia, in, wow. in New Zealand, all over Canada, all over fucking uh, you know Montana and Wyoming. Never took me. One. I'd make these giant fishing lures, and he'd be like, "Oh, those are super cool." Yeah, I'm gonna go on this fishing trip. I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I got a great idea." You know, bye. You know, he was there was never. So the time I asked him to teach me how to fly fish, he put me in a field with a fly rod and um, the line and everything, but no no fly. And he showed me how to cast, and he says, I just want you to sit out here and cast for a while. So I was just casting line. He showed me how to do it, and he showed 10 and 2 and all that, and keeping your, you know, your wrist straight, and you know, you're just you're moving the elbow and – that's it. You're not using your whole arm. You're just kind of in the, the timing. Right. So I was yeah. sitting in this goddamn field, you know, flinging string around for like three hours. And like, you know, there wasn't even a question, you know, what about when are we going to go to the water? I'm not going to the water. I mean, but, it, but once, I mean, it was like I was in there. I got to the point where I enjoyed the casting so much. Like you have control over this. You're having control of this based on your technique, and then you can start to put the end of that tippet wherever you want. And then when I got to finally fly fish on my own, and I never fly fish with him, I would fly fish with my friends or something like that. All that technical training of 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 casting and being able to understand how to move the fly and where to put the fly and how to get it where you need it because you can't do it like regular fishing you have to really move use the momentum and the power of the rod to kind of shoot the the line out it's it could it got to the point where i didn't even care if i caught a fish you know if i could say i want to i want to get this fly by that eddy or whatever by that rock or something and I I could just fish all day and not catch a fish, but I jo- enjoyed the mechanics and the meditation of fly fishing. And I think it's all the same. Yeah, I think my grandfather used to fly fish, and he um, he would actually cut open like the trout belly when he yeah. caught it and see what they ate, and then tie the fly to match what they were eating. Dang. Um, yeah, serious. but he invented the first. I don't know what you call it. It's the tool that they use to thread the line through the fly. He in, he invented a tool. Sorry about that, my dog. That's broken. right. Um, invented a tool and sold it to Orvis, and he got a check the rest of his life. Dude. Yeah, and he got his – actually, there's a whole – like Orvis took his idea, and they obviously developed it and made it better. But in the Fly Fishing Museum in southern Vermont out, outside of the Orvis flagship store – there is a display of like his first one and then like what Oris did after, like the, you know, as it, as the idea evolved. So it's kind of cool. Jesse Savage family, family is unbelievable. You're a man out of time. <laughs> I got tons of stories. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Mm. So is there anything else you want to get into or, you know, anything you want? Uh, what do you, what, what's coming up with you? You're working on a, you're working on a, a new shit, a new shop, right? Yeah, my shop. So my shop is like, for anybody who doesn't know, everybody thinks it's a shipping container when I post on my Instagram. It does look um, like a shipping container. Yeah, it does. I've had people stand inside of it and go, is this a shipping container that you built around? I'm like, when, oh, I, when I was forging with you, I thought, oh, you've got a shipping container, a big one. Yeah. I put up metal. Yeah, I, I put up metal walls. So it's um, it's basically like 11 feet by 43 feet long. But the last like... 12 is kind of like a separate part for wood. So the inside is really like 33 by 11. So I'm adding out the back like 13 
and then going to full 43. So I'll have like a little cove off to the side because I'm still going to keep the area for my firewood. But So um, is it going to be walled in or? Yeah, it's going to be walled in. It's going to have like, um, it's going to bas- basically be like 23, 24 by 43-ish. Minus so you're the doubling length. the size of your shop. Yeah, more than doubling the size, which wow. is will be cool. So I'll have like a full fabrication area and a full forging area and then like a little cove for all like what I call the bullshit area, which is just going to be like my like the belt sanders and like the drill right. presses and bandsaw. So we can like, have a, ha- a hammer in at the sav- at this at the savage yeah, I think, estate. Yeah. The you could, I could definitely I could do a small one, I think, once I add on. Well, the modern forge guys bring us up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So nobody wants to drive all the way up here. <laughs> That's the only thing. You'd have to stay. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is the first time I ever drove up to you, I had a, my, my – the, the – the uh, I think it was the springs and the shocks Yo, in my yeah, car right. fell it broke. apart. And yeah, you were it, like sitting on the frame. I was – we had to we had to put the anvil on top of the – I bought an anvil from you. And I had to put it on yeah. top of where it was to make sure that the uh, the, the, the the shock wouldn't fly through into the band, into the car. It was totally crazy. Yeah, so that we'll was crazy. That. We'll and it was like a snowstorm you drove right. up in. Yeah. It was, yeah. I, I'm looking at that anvil right now. Last question. Last yeah. question. Well, I got two. I got. I had a couple questions from Rick. I, you know what? Let's let's have a let's have a question. What's from the? Rick. Do you have Stephen Connor said he cemented one. You got his. Stephen Connor. Stephen Connor. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh yes. Uh, give me one second. Let me let me. Uh, Stephen Connor did submit one. Uh, hold on. Uh, I'll find it. I'll find it. I'll find it. Um. <sighs> This isn't. This isn't really. Um, no, I. I don't. I don't have it. Uh, I don't have it. Sorry, Stephen Connor. No, that's all I, right. I have. I do have a question from Rick Barter, okay. your co-host from the Blacksmith's Pub. It's if you could work with anyone living or dead, who would it be? I think I just had this question. You did. I Not from so. me. Um. No. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah, podcast. yeah, all right. Then fuck that. Let's do. A, I'll do a different one. I'll do. A, I'll do a different. He sent me a pile of them. So fuck. Don't worry about that other podcast. Okay. Next one. All right. So the next one from Rick is, um, what has been the most gratifying part of your ancestry research? Um, I think making connections with like real cousins and stuff and family members, like going to Guernsey and meeting cousins and people that know know the stories um more things you can find out like just connections with people um you know seeing somebody for the first time that you know looks like your aunt so-and-so and you're like right. oh my god like you're related like we never talked about this side of the family because like the guy was an alcoholic and you know it was like a negative thing for like this generation but it's not for me like i want to jump over that guy and like go beyond that because I, I, he may have been a bad egg, but I don't think his family was. Um, so I, I think that's important to look at if I think if anybody has like, um, well, we all have like history that's negative and I think it's, it's okay to jump over that person um, and find the good in the, in the family lineage. Cause it's yeah, not all bad. You're not going to find Yeah, They all can't be good. Right. Some right, of them exactly. Assholes. Yeah. All right, you have a follow-up question from uh, Damascus Dave. 
<laughs> oh, no. <laughs> he, he says, why is Rick such a window licker? <laughs> what does those that guys mean? Are, those guys, I'm for some reason get involved in a group texting chat with them. And with Dave and, and Dave. They'll be like, Dave I'll look at my Rick phone Carter. and there'll be 73 text messages back and forth between the two of them. And every other one is the middle finger and like the shit sign. And it's like they just call each other names and beat each other up for hours. I thought that, I thought that meant something. Obviously, it didn't mean anything. I don't know. Um, uh, Rasmus, uh, Rasmus Steengard wants to know, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you were suddenly allergic to either water or ferrous metals, what would you choose? <laughs> So what do you what what I don't know that's a that's a tough one. I don't think you can live without either, right? You'd have an iron deficiency or whatever if you Well, you're you know, I was going to say I like ice water. I always my family's so sick of me saying this is when it's super hot I get a glass of ice water and I'll turn to whoever's by the sink and I'll be like, "What do you think the first person who had a glass of ice water thought?" And they're just looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm just like, "I bet they were pumped." I I'll drink a glass of ice water and I'll just like ponder how good it is. And I'll look at them like the first guy who figured this one out must have been real happy. Yeah. All right. Well, that didn't turn out the way I wanted to. So the next one's going to be uh, last question from Alex Davey. When was the moment you knew you were an adult? That's um, a tough one. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I have one. Maybe, maybe the moment deer hunting with my stepfather and it was like, we were always going out in the middle of the woods, like, and I would sit and freeze my ass off and wait, look at the walkie-talkie and wait for either him or one of his brothers to shoot the deer so I could go help help him drag it out and get the hell out of the woods. Because I was never going to shoot anything because nothing ever walked in front of me. And I right. just awful. Or if they did, I would miss the deer anyways. Um, but there was one day it was like zero or negative, you know, something sitting there and uh he came i was about to just say it to him over the walkie-talkie i'm like this is it like i i this is ridiculous like i'm not i'm like sick of sitting out here in the cold and freezing my ass off and i hear him come through the walkie-talkie and he says this is what separates the men from the boys and i was like yep okay now i can't say anything because <laughs> i'm like I have to sit out here and freeze my ass off. So I waited for him to give up, and we went down. <laughs> you did. You wait. Oh, spite turned you into, a, into an oh, adult. Yeah, I was like, well, now I can't. <laughs> I fucking don't like that. That's oh, funny. I would say, you know, the funny thing I was, I was thinking about this question, and I, and I actually, it was actually, I really thought I was talking about my wife about it, and I said it had to have been really felt like it was an adult. It was the death of my father. Because so much came through, like you know, I think about it. You got married, and you know, I was, I was young when I got married, and then I was, you know, thirty when my daughter was born. And when your when your kid's born, you just, especially if it's your first kid, and obviously you don't, you you you've had a, you got a few of them. The first one, you're just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, and if I don't know what I'm doing, then my wife doesn't know what I'm what she's doing. Then we're not adults because we don't have a good answer for this. So even even raising my kid, we're just like. Oh, hope we're doing this right you know you didn't have the confidence of feeling like an adult you know when my dad died and a lot of kind of dealing with certain feelings and dealing with the, the outcome and, and a lot of stuff it was really like this moment of like your your the father figure's gone and then how do you kind of address it mm. and it really changed me I mean it was really like a profound difference in 
a more confidence. It was a, I had more, I, it was like a very, very, it was like the, you know, the three months afterwards, it was, it was a huge change in my life, a huge change. Like I physically felt like, and this, we're talking like 12 years ago or something like that. Yeah. It was a real moment where I was just like, all right, I'm an adult. And it was a, it was a, it was a life changing thing for the better. Like I thought I became a better father. I became a better husband and you know, hopefully a better everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of have to own your own existence at that, you know, life-changing moment in time. And that's what you're going to do, Jesse Savage. You're going to own your own existence. <laughs> there you go. Jesse Savage, <laughs> Jesse Savage Blacksmith on Instagram. You know him. You already know him. You are already here. You know what's going on. I'm so happy you're here. I am a giant fan of you and your wife, Carrie. You're fantastic. Every time I see you guys, I'm always I have such a good time. I love talking with you, uh, and I I, enjoy, I can't wait to, for this coronavirus to you know hopefully yeah, fall apart so so we can see each other again. Uh, I'm I'm like I've been I've been pushing everything away. I'm not going in to see anybody. I don't even leave in this town. But I can't thank you enough for being here, Jesse. Yeah, absolutely. We we love you too, and. Um... Well, you know, I can't wait. I'm like dying to get together with you, uh, John and, and Cliff again and hang out and forge. But but not um, Dave. But not, not Dave. Dave. Not, not Dave. Dave. Dave, he'll be quarantined after this whole thing. I and think we'll they were gonna... see, like we'll see. I mean, who knows at Maker Camp? Like if um you know, I'm what looking happens forward if... to Maker Camp. I'm looking yeah, forward to Maker hope... Camp. I hope it happens. I'm I, I'm positive that's happening. I know that Mareko Mamasi had to make it the tough decision. To, he's not going to go, but he we're gonna he'll be there in spirit. And uh, I'm looking yeah, forward. Yeah, I think time. a lot. That's what's going to happen is a lot of people from far away. Yeah, yeah. You know, may not be able to go, or you know, depending on what their state is saying and i think it's important to pay attention to that stuff so. super important and it's so yeah. it's super important to pay attention to our friends and you're my friend and, and i and i can't wait to see you again and we're going to have to do this again and i'm looking forward to listening to you on the next episode of the of the blacksmith's pub with with rick barter gotta listen to that everybody that's an awesome podcast and if you want to interact with this podcast go to the full blast podcast on instagram and follow us. You can DM your questions um, and, uh, to there. And if you go to iTunes, I need your help. I need reviews. I need stars, high stars, five stars. Need me leave me a review and subscribe. It helps this podcast and the other podcasts on the Makery Network. We're, we've got a lot of good things coming up. I got uh, a lot of good guests coming up on book through the winter. And then we're gonna we're gonna f- figure this out. So once again, Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you for for being here. Thank you for being my friend. And I, and I look forward to hearing more about what happens to you and that savage family. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, of course, really appreciate it. Oh, it was a no, it was a no brainer. All right, guys, we're gonna see you next week with Chris Cash. Awesome, love that guy. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.